1: At the end of chapter 2, we saw the most powerful pagan monarch in the world lying prostrate before an exiled Jew, and we were reminded of the central theme of this great book of the Bible. Despite all appearances to the contrary, God is in control. He is in control of the present, and he has a plan for the future. He knows how to preserve and promote a remnant of his people, and it is that promotion that leads to the drama of chapter 3. Let me read to you again the closing words of chapter 2. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Daniel has been honored and promoted, and he uses that promotion to leverage key positions in the Babylonian government for his Jewish friends. And that draws the ire of his pagan rivals. And in chapter 3, they begin to push back. We pick up the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth, 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, In the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning Fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples' nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, I, I think it should be fairly obvious that the statue in chapter 3 has some relationship to the statue in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar saw a giant statue in a dream that had a head of gold, and Daniel told him that he, Nebuchadnezzar, was the head of gold. He was the head. He was the first and foremost of all the kingdoms that collectively made up the kingdom of man. Now, here we have Nebuchadnezzar building a statue, all of gold, and commanding people to worship it. Now, scholars will disagree among themselves as to whether we are to understand the statue as representing Nebuchadnezzar or as representing some sort of God that Nebuchadnezzar was crediting for his rise and prominence. We can't be sure, and in the end, it probably doesn't matter a great deal. The relationship between king, nation, and God was much closer in those days and in that culture than it is in ours, and it isn't a huge leap from whatever Nebuchadnezzar is doing here to what the Caesars will do in the Roman Empire in declaring themselves to be gods and demanding worship. The point is that no faithful Jew will be able to bow down before this statue. They are subject to the second commandment, which clearly says, "...you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath." or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 20, verses 4-5. to So God's people cannot bow down to any statue or carved image, whether that statue represents the king or the king's god or some weird combination of the two. It's not going to happen. It can not happen. And that leads to the drama of chapter 3, which goes on to say, In verse eight, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. So these men, O king, don't worship you, and they don't worship your gods. What are you going to do about that, Nebuchadnezzar? Now, they don't mention Daniel by name because Daniel was too powerful at this point. But they figure that they can go after his friends for failing to worship the image of gold. All right, listen to me, my friends. The failure of God's people to worship the same things as the people of the culture are worshiping, has often been a source of contention. If we aren't as excited, if we aren't as concerned, if we aren't as committed to the things that the culture is obsessed with and committed to, then we will have to face the wrath of the culture. That's what's going on here. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar establishes a bit of an impromptu test. He says, I'll play the music, right? And then you will bow down in worship or you will die. And then he asks the question, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, if Nebuchadnezzar has not yet gone all the way over to thinking of himself as a God, he has come very close indeed. Scholars disagree whether actually at this time, uh, Babylonian leaders, kings, were thinking of themselves as semi-divine or as divine. That, That happened in Egypt. The pharaohs thought of themselves as sort of an incarnation of the gods. It happened later in this statue. If we think of this statue, this progression of world kingdoms that is together or collectively the city of God, that happens later because the Roman Caesars think of themselves as gods. But scholars disagree. Is is Nebuchadnezzar toying with this idea that, that he is a god? Well, if he's not, he's coming very, very, very close to that. Because when you say... I can do things that God can't undo. You are saying that you are like God, that you are as strong as God. Because God says in Deuteronomy 32, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver from my hand Deuteronomy 32 39 so that's what God says about himself that's what it means to be God it means to do and to be unchallenged in your doing and that's what Nebuchadnezzar is claiming for himself and that sets up the theological challenge of this text now the young man answered the king in verse 16 Shadrach Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king oh Nebuchadnezzar We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, there's an awful lot to admire in the way that these young men respond to King Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, it's clear... That They know to whom they're ultimately responsible. They don't give to Nebuchadnezzar the authority he claims for himself. And in this way, they sound an awful lot like Peter and John in Acts 4, 19-20. When Peter and John were dragged before the Sanhedrin and commanded not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So the apostles say to the Sanhedrin, you are not our ultimate authority. And, and Christians may need to say that to the state from time to time. Now, Christians should respect the state. We have Romans 13, 1-7 for that. But they must not cede to the state ultimate authority, even when the state is, claims ultimate authority for itself, as Nebuchadnezzar is doing here in Daniel 3. Now, we should also notice that these young men did not assume that God would rescue them from the trouble that they were in, from their persecution. They said that God was able to do that, but they did not claim to know whether he would do that. And that's important because God does allow some faithful people to pay the ultimate price, in part, to show the world that their ultimate loyalty and devotion is not to human rulers and not even to their own lives. Nothing proves the reality of faith more than the sacrifice of one's own life. These young men weren't seeking that. They didn't have a martyr complex, but they did want it clear that they would not deny God in order to save their own skin. They did not claim to know how God would glorify himself in this situation. They just knew what they needed to do to honor him. And and then lastly here, I think we should admire and carefully note the respectful tone of these young men in Daniel 3. Like the apostles in Acts 4, they are not rude. They simply make it clear that they are subject to a higher authority. And, And notice too that they didn't initiate this encounter. They were not publicly protesting. They were privately disobeying And they only ended up before the king because they were informed upon by jealous rivals. Christians do not seek out opportunities to thumb their noses at the king. And I think that too needs to be noticed and appreciated. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's a really good response. We pick up the story at verse 19. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. All right, now, we have to remember that those words come from a wayward pagan monarch, not an orthodox biblical theologian, but even still, it would be hard not to hear in that an anticipation of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, in Christ, the son of God, God comes down into our hell and he surrounds us. He saves us. He preserves us and he lifts us out. Thanks be to God. Final section of the story begins in verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of the fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruin, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. God is large and in charge. He is in control of the present, and he has plans for the future. He knows how to protect and preserve and promote his people. And he knows how to shut the mouths of kings. Sometimes he saves us from the fire. And sometimes he saves us in the fire. But whether from or in, he alone is God. And he alone is worthy of our praise.
0: Once again, that's into the word.ca. We hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word.